on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. I kind of cringe at like this whole like, oh yeah, let's do content marketing as a marketing strategy. It's more of like, how do we, how do we just like support our community? How do we bring value to the community? How do we uh, educate them? How do we help them become better versions of themselves? How do we help them keep on improving? Uh, because we do believe that when our audience invests in themselves, that that positive investment in themselves can spread off to their family and to their careers and to you know, ultimately uh, the, the community around them. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is the forefather of the Urban Beardsman movement, which turned a $30 investment in a side project into a seven-figure e-commerce business dominating a market. With a value for freedom, this bearded entrepreneur and his team have bootstrapped the entire way by focusing on community, experience, and educational content, which has amassed a 1.59 million subscriber count on YouTube that fuels over two-thirds of their purchases. However, the journey started as many beards do, patchy, unpredictable, and going astray. With the entrepreneurial spirit in his blood, he attempted dozens of businesses from selling vinyl graphics to graphic design and most failing to make any money at all. So it's back to putting on a corporate veil and working in sales. In a culmination of feeling caged working as a financial advisor and tired of hearing Duck Dynasty or Grizzly Adam references about his beard, he set out once again, this time to change the way society views spiritism. Starting in 2012, the humble brand was nothing more than a community that gained the attention of a New York Times reporter seeking expertise on beard care products and started a roller coaster events that grew from $0 to 120K per month in sales. From getting beard rubs by the sharks on Shark Tank, being featured in the World Series commercial by ShipStation, to partnering with retail juggernaut Target, this small but mighty e-commerce business has received plenty of exposure. Yet the truth to their success has not been predicated on one-hit wonders and hyper-growth uh, profits at all costs, but rather grown consistently month over month with dedication to making men awesome. I'm honored to welcome the founder of Beard Brand, author of the Book of Reminders, and is a designer who learned his skills making fake ideas in Photoshop, Eric Bandholz. Dang, dude, man, you've done your research. <laughs> that, was quite, that was quite the introduction, man. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your upbringing. You came from a family of entrepreneurs doing, you know, little side hustles in grade school, like selling pixie sticks and whatnot. How did this kind of shape you? Yeah, I think is like entrepreneur learned or is it like a nature versus nurture kind of thing? I think it's a little yeah. bit of both. I think there, there's opportunities for any type of personality to be successful, but I'm naturally a guy who likes to start things. Like I remember... Uh, like you said, I, I tried to start up this little pixie stick uh, company at our school and we had like a little ledger. And uh, I remember wanting to be the guy who wanted to start up bands with my friends and my classmates and try to get like some some band going on. And it was always just like this dream of like creating something new, some talent show or something like that. And entrepreneur is really like this amazing thing that you get to kind of uh, utilize your own creativity and problem solving, which are attributes that I feel are pretty in line with me naturally, something that I, I gravitate towards and I enjoy. And I recognize that, that not everyone's naturally uh, inclined to want to solve problems or to find problems and solve them. So 
Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to kind of be doing the things that I'm doing. Your daughter is in a special kind of education program that can instill some of these values. Are you trying to pass those along that like problem solving skills and whatnot? Yeah, so my daughter is, uh, there's a school system called Acton, Act On, A-C-T-O-N, Acton Academy. And their whole premise is really child-focused education through like projects. They don't so much as to say it's like an entrepreneurial focus, but the way that I describe it is entrepreneurial focus because it is like taking on these responsibilities. If you fail, you fail. You're not supposed to get assistance from your, your parents. There's no homework. So it's really trying to teach a child uh, how to learn and how to educate themselves and how to like utilize their own interests to kind of find things. And then they are they are kind of like grounded in Socratic uh, method. So there is like this element of students like coming up with the rules and guides and things like that for the, the school year. And they'll have like an overarching theme for the year, like what is the question that they want to answer. And then, so my daughter, she's, she's only six, so she's in the theater school to that called uh, Ascent uh, here in Austin, Texas. And right now, the program she's in, the, the best way to describe it would just be like a very similar to a Montessori school. So mm-hmm. she hasn't quite gotten to the next stage yet, but, uh, you know, starting uh, this fall, she'll be getting into that. So I'm excited to see how she does in that and how she takes uh, responsibility for her, her actions and if she's uh, willing to be self-motivated and do all the things that you need to do to be successful in this type of uh, learning environment. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, speaking about education, you went to college hoping to learn some sort of sales, which obviously they don't have a degree for, but then ended up working in sales. What was your experience in that? And what were some of the important lessons you learned during that time? Yeah, I've always been a very competitive person uh, in addition to like a creative problem solver. So um, sales is kind of like uh, another profession for me where it is, uh, you get to spend time with people. I'm an extrovert. I enjoy being around other people. There is that, for me, that, that, that problem solving of, of trying to, to flip a, a client or uh, it, it's really not so much trying to convince someone who's not interested, but to, to find the reason why they're not interested. And if your product uh, or service fits along those reasons, then help them understand and see that. So it's really kind of doing this investigative, you know, finding the root of the problem and, and understanding and having empathy towards the client. And then based on that empathy, providing solutions, or if there is no solution, then saying, hey, I appreciate your time. It's not a good fit and moving on. So I was, I was trained in Sandler sales, which is kind of like the win-win of uh, sales practices. I really enjoy that. But in college, uh, you know, of course, like sales is like one of the number one industries in America, but there's, there's no formal education for it in the school systems, which I think is kind of silly that you could have all these other like marketing and business and management, but, but not sales. And, but anyway, so I ended up taking courses that were, that I thought would lead me on that pathway. And, and what they ended up being is a, a double majored in, in marketing and management. My focus in management was entrepreneurship. And then uh, my minor was retail. So uh, I, I somehow ended up like having the, the perfect degree uh, for what I'm doing now, which is online yeah. retail and, and entre- entrepreneurship, small business. So when you were working in sales after college, you were doing a ton of different you know, side projects, most of them failing. How many did, ideas have you gone through oh before? Oh my God, dude, man. I, I got reaching? Yeah, I, I, like, ideas come to me like... Uh, 
snowflakes come to Eskimos or something like that. <laughs> I don't know what the, the best analogy or uh, saying is, but yeah, it's not hard for me to generate new ideas. And really, sales, I, I really enjoy, but it's actually one of those things that I get really tired or bored of, like really quickly. I feel like once I figure out the product and service, and once I figure out how to kind of close the deal, after that, it's boring. Like the, the, the challenge is no longer there. And mm. once the challenge is gone, I, I don't have that that grind to do the same thing for years on end. So I'm, I'm not effectively a, re- a really good salesperson. Like I, I'm a good salesperson for a, a one time or for a short period of time, but for like a kind of like a endurance type of sales, I, I can't do that. So uh, entrepreneurship really is kind of like that thing that, that keeps me going and continues to, to feed me challenges throughout the years. But what happens is in these sales roles, because I, I can generally figure it out within three months or six months, I get bored. And when you get bored, that's when the creativity really flows. So my, my job at uh, selling uh, printing, I was a commercial printing salesman, and I would, I would travel around Charlotte all day long, do a hundred miles a day. And I would remember just like in the car, I would just come up with these ideas, like a new design for a beard <laughs> bottle. I remember I had, I had these uh, ideas for like uh, motorcycle cops to put like their, their lights on their helmets to give more visibility because the lights on the bicycles. And, you know, 20 years later, I ended up seeing that someone's actually putting brake lights on the back of the helmets, which I thought yeah. was cool. And that had a similar idea of, of what I had finally made it to market. And uh, yeah, I've, I've just got a whole slew of them. There's just... And a lot of them, like I have no, well, pretty much all my ideas, I have no expertise in. So that's where the fun is, is like figuring out how do I, you know, hack together a, a helmet with lights on it. When you were working in sales and, you know, doing these side projects, what was your kind of plan of escape to maybe be an entrepreneur full time? In the early days, the goal was, and, and I really remember this from like day number one, was trying to motivate my team members or my I, and I know these are like always against like what you sign when you work for a company, but it was like to encourage them to go and start a business with me. So it'd be like, hey, John Doe, you know, let's go start a business doing this or doing that. Or here's an idea. Let's do it. He's like, and they're like, oh, yeah, man, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. I'm like, all right, well, let's do it. I'm ready to quit. Boom. You know, I don't care. Like if, if I got to eat ramen for the rest of my life and like <laughs> wear one pair of, of clothes, uh, I'm willing to do that because just the, the, the draw of freedom, starting something up. But a lot of uh, the people I've talked to, they, they didn't have that same appetite for risk. So it was very difficult to convince people who weren't inherently drawn to entrepreneurship to become entrepreneurs. So I spent like 10 years trying to convince you know, my family, my brother, uh, my coworkers, my friends, all these people to, to go and start a business with me. Never worked, man. Never worked. So that was like, if, if, you're, if you're in that phase, rather than trying to convince people to to start a business with you, try to find other people who are inherently entrepreneurial. You ended up going to like a startup weekend and like you were meeting other entrepreneurs here, which is where you actually worked with your co-founders for the first time. Can you talk about like why it's important to meet other people there, but then also have like a project to work on before you go full into something? Yeah, as you said, I I used to live in Spokane where you live and I was there for about four, four or five years. Spokane is a really great town for entrepreneurship, or at least for me, because it was so small that you were really able to kind of like break into the culture really quick or into the community really quick and develop those relationships really quickly. 
and be able to connect with whoever you need to connect with to, to get your, your stuff done. So when I was in Spokane, I was part-time like trophy husband, part-time, <laughs> uh, and then for a period of time, a full-time financial advisor, and then a uh, you know, uh, uh, failed entrepreneur, and, uh, and also a dude who ran a beard club. <laughs> and uh, so in the process, I, I went to uh, S- Spokane Society of Young Professionals. I don't know if you're a member of that, but I went there and that's where I met my current business partner, Lindsay. And uh, we just kind of hit it off. Uh, we told like terrible dad jokes and I had a lot of fun meeting there. And then like, I think I invited her to uh, come to like, her brother has a really good beard. I invited her and her brother to come to one of my, my beard club events. And then Jeremy, I met at uh, this other community project that I had start up called, what was it? Society of Libertarian Entrepreneurs. So this was like a little group that I had started up when I was doing my like graphic design business. And there's like, you know, five people. And funny story for that, Jeremy was at, at, at the venue that I was at uh, for a Twitter meetup, a networking mm-hmm. event for that. And uh, I had not known about that Twitter meetup. We just had our uh, libertarian meetup in the same place. So anyways, we get the, the things like, our thing is like a half an hour early. So all the guys are there who are at this entrepreneurial event. And Jeremy just comes and joins us. And I'm like, who are you, dude? Like, because I knew everyone in the group. There's only like five of us. And he's like, oh, I'm Jeremy. And then we just kind of talked about what we're about. And he's like, yeah, actually, you're not the you're not the Twitter meetup. And I'm like, no, no, wrong, wrong thing. He's like, oh, well, you guys seem pretty cool. I'm going to stick with you guys rather than the Twitter the Twitter meetup. So that's kind of where uh, I met Jeremy. And then I was I had already done a startup weekend at that point. Really enjoyed it. Startup weekend for those who aren't familiar is a uh, basically a weekend where you have a the focus of building a minimal viable product for a business and, and trying to generate sales. And you'll break up into like groups of, I don't know, like six to, to 10 people and work on this. So you're building a website, you're making the product, you're pitching it, you're trying to sell it. And then at the end of it, you give a presentation on, on how it went. So the first year I did it, I had uh, this uh, idea called Tarango. Tarango is a, a region in Australia. And the concept was this wine app that was essentially like a, it was like Pandora for wines. You would just go and give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down based on you like it. And then the, the algorithm would learn uh, your preferences based on the profiles of the wine and start to make wine recommendations. So we, we had a lot of fun doing that. And then I went again and I convinced Lindsay and Jeremy to, to join the second time around. And it was there where we all worked on the same project together. And we kind of realized that not only were we like friends and uh, you know passionate, entrepreneurs, but we were also pretty philosophically aligned with how we worked and how we had focus and how we saw problems and solved problems. So that was really great because I think a lot of businesses get together and they get started up without entirely knowing how uh, your business partner works. And that can cause a a lot of strife uh, with a business where you're working, uh, you're fighting within the business rather than working together to grow the business. In the meantime, you're doing this beard club, you're growing a blog, and you just convince these guys that, hey, we should do this beard thing. The other thing I had was Spokane Beard and Mustache Club, which I had gotten really into like beard culture, and there's no like beard club in, in uh, Spokane at the time. So, And I'm pretty sure Spokane Beard and Mustache still exist, and they're still a, a thriving organization. So you, I, I don't know if you're a member there or not, but you should. Uh, uh, I know of them. I'm not a member okay. yet. If you ever go there, I think there's still some like old school members 
who are part of it that would would remember me. But uh, yeah, so we I, I created that, and again, it was just like dudes with beards and their friends and family drinking beer. Like it was just like <laughs> the best thing ever. Like there's no membership dues or anything like that. It's like let's let's just hang out and have some beers and you know talk about life and you know enjoy you know sharing tips about beard care. And then there was also like beard competitions and things like that that were kind of fun to, to attend. So I had that going and, and Lindsay and Jeremy were, were regular attendees of those events and they kind of like the, the community and the culture too. So I had that going. I had, like I said, Society of Libertarian Entrepreneur going on. I had Startup Spokane going on. I had uh, my design business called Sovereignty going on. And then I had Beard Brand kind of going on as well. So I had like these, what was it, five projects, four projects going on. Yeah, I was like your typical ideas guy, right? And everyone hates an ideas guy. And then you just have these ideas and then you don't do anything. And I was executing like very, very poorly. And I'm not an executor. It's not something I do well. As I said, like I can do it for three months and then I kind of get bored. And so, you know, fortunately for, for me, uh, a reporter for the New York Times reached out to write this article called The, the Taming of the Beards. And she wanted to quote me in it. And we utilized that as a catalyst to, to launch the, the business side of Beard Brand. Up to that point, it was just a YouTube channel and Tumblr page uh, and a little blog. So I was lucky enough that the timing of that and Jeremy and Lindsay having availability to, to, to do a side project to kind of all fell in line. And, uh, you know, looking back uh, eight years later, it's very serendipitous that it, that it all happened the way it did. Yeah. How did you have the, the insight or, you know, the know-how that like, oh, we should definitely get a store up because this is going to you know bring traffic in. Yeah, I mean, really the, the kind of the timeline of events, there's actually a fourth person uh, in this, uh, I want to call it like the PayPal mafia, but because we're, <laughs> we're not nearly uh, at the same level as those guys, but it was just kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the Spokane beard and mustache mafia, we, we can call it yeah. that. I had a, a, a fourth friend or a third friend, Joshua McKee, uh, still a great friend of mine. He was involved in it. So our first project after the startup weekend was to, to build this uh, company called Ledge, Lindsay, Eric, Jeremy, and Josh. And we would have uh, essentially like pre-screened uh, candidates for uh, recruiting. And that was centered around Josh's uh, primary business, which is Atlas Staffing. He has a staffing company. And it was kind of like a spinoff project of that. So we were working on that for like a good month or so. Uh, but he kind of got cold feet because he didn't want to compete with his primary business, which was Atlas, and he kind of feared of cannibalizing sales and, and things like that. So uh, we're like, yeah, dude, that, that totally makes sense. It's no worries. And then I'm like, well, I got this, I got this beard brand thing that's been on the, the back burner for me. Why don't we give this a shot and uh, see if we can get a couple sales uh, before this New York time. So we, we literally like threw the website up in like a couple of days or maybe a day. I pushed it live the day before the article posted. And then, uh, yeah, we got like 200 bucks in sales that, that first couple of days. From that point on, you guys have been entirely bootstrapped. Why remain bootstrapped and not take any funding on? Uh, the beauty of building a business is there's a lot of different reasons and ways to build a business. There's no right or wrong, and, and uh, a business should really be a reflection of, of the owners. Going back to what I said earlier, Lindsay, Jeremy, and I are very philosophical. So one of our, or our core values are freedom, hunger, and trust. And to me, like freedom means no debt and it means no like outside influence. So kind of like taking outside investment was 
wouldn't say it was entirely off the table, but but it really had to be the right partner for us if we were going to do it. And then debt is kind of the same thing. Like if, if you have debt, you, you, you're really not working for your customers, you're working for the bank. They have to learn. And if you have VCs, you're really, again, you're really not working for the customers, you're working for the VCs. But when you have no VCs, you have no debt, then you get to work exclusively for your customers. And that's something that we really enjoy. It's like every minute you spent getting your pitch deck together and going out to raise money is a minute that you're taking away from serving your customers. And we really wanted to be a customer-focused organization and, and build a company that our customers would find value in. And, and if it only grew to you know, $25,000 a year type of business, then it would just be a nice side project for us. And we were okay with that. So we never had this like, oh yeah, you know, let's do Beard Brand. Like I always saw the potential of it, but I never uh, assumed the potential of it. So with that, we just kind of built it as the feedback came to us and we're very Mm. flexible with that. If you weren't taking on funding or anything, what was the decision process to go on Shark Tape? We didn't need funding, but if there was a right partner, we would do it. Mm. We would totally do a deal on Shark Tank. And I think there's a lot of opportunities that partnering up with someone with the experience of, of the sharks could give you that you want to be able to get from like your typical you know, Spokane investor. So that was something that we definitely considered. We were hoping to get a deal with, with Damon because of what he built with FUBU and being able to leverage that. We really wanted Beard Brand to be more lifestyle oriented than product oriented. And uh, really appreciated what he did with that company and, and hope to be able to, to, to learn from him. But unfortunately, we, we didn't, get, uh, didn't even get an offer. So we didn't even mm. get an opportunity to turn them down. And I would say they're pretty foolish for that. You know, a lot of people who have been on Shark Tank are, are no longer in business. But, you know, uh, as they say, it is what it is. So we are still very grateful to be on the show and, and the opportunity to tell our story in front of millions of people. Yeah, absolutely. Because you guys are bootstrapped, you've had to kind of take a different approach and like really focus in on the community content experience, as I mentioned in the intro. How have you guys focused on like uniting your customers around this identity? I would say it was pretty easy because to a lot of degrees, Beard Brand is an extension of who I am as an individual. So it's it's kind of like understanding what my problems are and the kind of the thought process with that is like if, if these are my problems and this is something that I'm interested in, then hopefully there's other people out there like me who can resonate and connect. And before Beard Brand, I was a big a user. I, I frequently attend, I frequently was on Jeff's Beard Board, which is an online forum. So I just really love the, the culture and the environment, the people like the online beard communities, the Reddit, our beards, our own beard brand alliance, the YouTube channel, beard brand. What I found is just, the guys are just amazing. Like they're just <laughs> like chill, they're laid back, they're easy going, like they've been around the block. They have patience, you need patience to grow a beard. Uh, they're fun to be around, like they're, they're not prudes. So you can like, you can like be yourself, but also there's not judgment in it either. Like you can be different from other people. So it was just like, I just really loved everything about that community. And and we coined the term like urban beardsmen to kind of describe, you know, the guys that didn't fit the traditional stereotype of, of the ZZ Tops or the Duck Dynasties or the Grizzly Adams and show that the, there could be more than, you know, those type of bearded stereotypes. And I think a lot of guys really resonated with that. And 
you know, me personally, I, I resonate with it. All myself, Urban Beardsman number one. So yeah, so really finding a way to serve the people that you enjoy being around, so you can you know continue to surround yourself with those type of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's been fun to to watch the the community grow and evolve. We certainly weren't the first company to to make products for beard care. Uh, we were pretty early, but I would say we were the first company to really you know, bring awareness to this new community of, of urban beardsmen and, and serve them. And, and as the community's grown, it's been fun to watch other beard-related companies start up and serve other type of demographics. There's this one company called like Fable Beard Company off the top of my mind who kind of goes after, um, they have like this medieval vibe and like a Renaissance fair type of person. And it's really cool. Like all their 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 bottles have like that artwork and Mm-hmm. And they call each other sire and things like that. So it's it's just fun to to see how the community continues to grow and evolve, even if it isn't specifically like kind of beard brand related. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy with the content marketing and you know really focusing on educating your customers, not just about the product, but you know about bettering themselves too. I like to say like uh, a lot of companies, uh, they do content marketing to drive sales of our products. The way we think about it at Beardbrain is we we sell products to be able to have resources to promote our content. And so it's, uh, and to promote our mission and what we're trying to do. So we're a very mission oriented organization and, and I think that helps guide you on what you're doing. So for us, it, it's, it, I kind of cringe at like this whole like, oh yeah, let's do content marketing as a marketing strategy. It's more of like, how do we, how do we just like support our community? How do we bring value to the community? How do we educate them? How do we help them become better versions of themselves? How do we help them keep on improving? Uh, because we do believe that when our audience invests in themselves, that that positive investment in themselves can spread off to their family and to their careers and to you know, ultimately uh, the, the community around them. And, and that through like a grassroots, bottom-up way is going to make society better rather than a, a top-down kind of like forcing everyone to be like somebody else. So I don't know, it drives me today to, to try to, you know, to inspire people. And, and everyone's different. You know, some people, you know, maybe there are dark dark points in their lives. They just came up with a... Actually, the beard it almost seems to be a catalyst for a lot of people. Like they, they just broke up or they just had a divorce or uh, they want to lose a lot of weight. And they're like, I'm not going to shave my beard until I get under, you know, like 200 pounds. Or, you know, they just lost a job, I think is another common reason. And so it, the beard is a catalyst for, for self-improvement. And fortunately for us, when people are growing a beard for the first time, they're seeking this out. And they're at that point in their life where they're open and receptive to self-improvement and bettering themselves and, and learning how to, to, to really love the person who looks back at it in the mirror. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate to, to be able to, to be part of that journey for them. Starting from what your mission is and building content, building things out for that, and then just having something like beard oil or whatnot to support that cause, I think is a very good way to go about it. Yeah. And I mean, like long after uh, the, the reality is like, you know, our products can be ripped off, you know, in, in right. a couple of days. And we, we knew that from day one. And, you know, if, if we made it, if we made this business about the products, we would we would just be in a race to bottom because uh, everything gets commoditized over time. So, 
as a bootstrap company, you, you know, we're not going to win that volume play. We're not going to be able to compete with the Gillettes, you know, old spices of the world who, who can do millions of units. So we have to build something that's sustainable and has margin in there to be able to, to pay our team and is also at a price point that is fair or reasonable to our, our customers. Uh, and we see that with our, our repeat rate, the amount of times our customers come back. I think a, a big differentiator for you guys is the entire experience of Beard Brand. You know, it's not just getting a product, but just like when you get the package, you have the special wrapping, you have um, whatever inserts you guys may be putting in there, like your book and whatnot, uh, which really differentiates you from what you could go find on Amazon and whatnot. And you guys aren't even on Amazon. So could you talk a little bit about making that experience and how that differentiates you? Yeah, Taylor Holiday on Twitter had uh, a really good saying about what's included in your boxes. But the only the only marketing channel you have where you have 100% conversion or like exposure rate is your unboxing experience. So I never I never thought of it that way until you know like a week ago. But it's it's so true. This is your experience that you really get to help your your customers understand what your brand is about and what you guys are about. And, you know, we've created over a thousand videos on YouTube. We've created over a thousand blog articles. I know not all of our customers have read every single one of those blog articles. And, and I know a lot of them, you know, maybe they just bought it because they heard the product's good and that's how they're coming in. So by, you know, doing things like dropping them, the book of reminders in there, it really allows them to kind of understand our thought process and, and our core values of freedom, hunger, and trust and what it means to us. And not everyone's going to connect with that, you know, like, and to a certain degree, you got to be okay with it. You know, I, I kind of, you know, the book of reminders is is not like a really safe piece. It, it's, uh, you know, the nine reminders I tell myself to face adversity and, and my views are not the same as everyone else's views. It's just not possible. But I'm willing to, to kind of put my views on paper and my beliefs on paper, going back to what I talked about earlier in there and, and hopefully connect with other people who are like-minded, who see the world in a similar way and hopefully really build a strong bind, a strong bond with, with those people rather than trying to be everything for everyone. I want to be a, an amazing resource for the people who really resonate with what we're trying to do at Beard Brand. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit of how you make decisions using your core values of freedom, hunger, and trust, both in your life and your business? Yeah, I mean, the, the core values very uh, conveniently or, or uh, very nicely are the same core values that Jeremy and Lindsay live by, freedom, hunger, and trust. We, we formulated these core values to kind of work as a triangle. So if you have too much freedom, you typically will lose trust. Uh, if you have too much hunger, you may lose freedom. You know, if you're working all the time, you're, you're slave to the death. So there, there is a balance to it. And, you know, you can't do all three of them at 100, you know, 150%. Like they, they have to be in balance with each other. So we do have the core values really permeate through everything. And it's when we think about like our core values, we don't think about it just as serving our customers, but also how do we build an organization for our team and our staff and and how do we make sure that the company like doesn't burn out, uh, the team doesn't burn out, that our team is free to leave. You know, we encourage our team to live a debt-free life so that they're choosing to, to walk through those doors mm. every single day and, and they're choosing to work for Beard Brand 
rather than feeling obligated to work to it to, to pay bills. So I really want them to, to be financially independent to the best of their abilities, to have money saved up, to be able to leave the company. And that threat of them leaving the company means that we have to make the company that much better. And the same goes with like our vendors. We want, we know that our vendors don't have to uh, make product for us or they don't have to serve us or serve ads. So we work hard to, to be the best uh, customer to them. You know, we try to pay our bills uh, as quickly as possible rather than like, you know, paying late or doing this whole like APAR stuff. You know, my goal is we're working towards it now. I don't, I don't know if we're entirely there yet, but when we get an invoice, I want to pay on receipt, even if the terms are at 10 or at 30. And I know that's dumb. You know, I know like every book in the world tells you that you want to have your cash flows, but if something ever happens to the business where we need help from our support or we need support from our vendors, hopefully they would, they would look at our history of, you know, paying quick and, and on time and fully without any games and treating them fairly as, uh, you know, almost as an insurance to help us out if, if times do get tough. A lot of entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs because they're looking for a level of freedom. Uh, do you feel that you've reached the level of freedom that you want in your life? Now, man, I don't know if you just looked at my, my uh, Twitter or not, but I just, mm. I, I literally just posted 30 minutes ago about this. It's, uh, I just said like freedom's my number one driver right now. And it gives you kind of autonomy and uh, freedom from outside influence and in power for people who want to control you. And, uh, you know, if, if you, if you follow my Twitter, you, you recognize that, uh, we're finally debt free and, you know, our house is paid off. We have no credit mm -hmm. card bills. We have no student loans, no car payments. The, the company's debt free. We have savings built up. So I don't have as much savings built up that I want. I would, I would like to have enough savings built up to where I could get passive income that would give me the life that I want, which is, you know, multi-million. So I have a lot of work uh, left to do in, in regards to that. But I think that one of the, the major next steps for me in terms of freedom is trying to get a second passport to, to give me a little more um, security to travel the world. And if, you know, like if America ever goes like Nazi Germany or something <laughs> crazy like that, then I'll, I'll be able to have a second passport for me and my family to be able to leave uh, the country and, and ultimately uh, continue to live a, a, a happy life in, in places uh, and hopefully be more prepared rather than being persecuted here. You know, if the world goes, like I'm a capitalist, if the world goes, you know, socialist and starts killing all the capitalists or something like that, you know, it's happened before and it, it won't surprise me if it happens again. Right. I don't, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen in America, but, you know. It doesn't hurt to be prepared. Well, yeah, if you like freedom, you're, you're going to be good there. And then, of course, you'll have a second passport, so you'll be able to live in multiple countries, which gives you you know, the flexibility of having a more diverse life. One of the reminders in your book is to invest in yourself first. How do you feel that um, doing that has helped you be successful? So this is a good segue because it's like with paying off your debts, paying off your student loans is really an investment in yourself. And I think a lot of people, they invest in social status. Uh, social status is not an investment in yourself. It's a, it's a vanity investment and uh, it's one that depreciates uh, so rapidly and has like no assets in it at all. So I've always been a, a very frugal guy 
very conservative with my money. I always save as much as possible. And, and we eat like ramen and we save money. And, and fortunately, you know, what year is it? 2020, 17 years into my career, we're starting to see the fruits of that where we can live a little bit nicer uh, life. We have a nice house over our head. And, but, but that was a lot of sacrifice up to this point. By investing in yourself, you have the cash available to sustain you during a startup business. So the first 10 months of a beard brand, I didn't pay myself at all. So we uh, were able to kind of live on our savings. And it was very, very, you know, humble life, of course. But it was something that allowed us to kind of chase our dreams. So, you know, nothing comes without struggle or failure um, on the road to success. And we talked about some of your business failures, but you and your wife have also struggled with infertility. How have you continued to remain strong in life, you know, with so many of those coming up? We struggled with infertility. We first started trying to have kids in 2008. And uh, it wasn't until my daughter was born in 2013 that the, the quote unquote infertility was temporarily resolved. And then it continued to be an issue after that until we had our, our second kid just four months ago. So me personally, I, I take a lot of lessons from Buddhism and, and Stoicism. I want to call myself a Stoic and I want to call myself a, a Buddhist. So don't don't quote me on any of these for like an accuracy uh, standpoint for these, but, but kind of the, the lessons of like contentness. I had a buddy who's Buddhist and he kind of said, He's, he's really said some profound things to me. One of them is, you know, basically like this will end, which is pretty amazing if you think about it from like a negative standpoint, is knowing that like this infertility part of uh, our lives is going to end at some point, you know, and, and uh, knowing that it is going to end, it allows me to kind of stay committed to my wife despite all of our, our personal struggles that we had and the stresses and the emotions of, of dealing with those losses. But also, it's a good reminder because when something's really amazing, knowing that it too is, is going to pass. And it kind of encourages you to be in the moment and accept the moment and kind of be embrace the moment. And then like stoicism, kind of a lot of the lessons from that are like visualizing everything that's going to happen in your life. And that's like the good, the bad. Like, I mean, I visualize my wife dying, my kids dying, being in car wrecks, but, you know, plane crashes, like all these terrible things, my parents dying. And, and part of that isn't because you wish those things, but because by visualizing it, you're prepared for it when it does happen. And, you know, you're still going to be distraught and, and overwhelmed, but the, the goal is because you're, you're prepared for it, that you're able to, to handle it and persevere through it and, and not uh, let it take over your life and, and throw you down harder than where you already are. And then, you know, again, going back to, to Buddhism, one of their, their tenets is there's just suffering in the world. So it's just kind of coming to terms and accepting that there's, <laughs> it's bad, you know, there's, there's suffering. And it's not just me, it's everyone. There's suffering for everyone. And I think a lot of people don't realize that either. They see you know, Bill Gates with billions of dollars and they, they don't think that he doesn't suffer. And he certainly does, I can guarantee it. Uh, and he certainly had moments in his life where of immense suffering. So I think it, it allows you to kind of have empathy for other people and it allows you to, to have perspective as to, to things. 
But with that being said, you know, my, my way of handling this is different than my wife. And I, I wish she handled it the same way as me because it would make it easier, but she doesn't. So I have to be patient and I'm not always patient. So I'm not always the, the best husband, but it is, uh, those lessons kind of help me along, along the journey. Mm. Well, congrats on the newborn son. What sort of things, you know, as a father, as a man, are you hoping to pass on to him? I think the biggest thing that, that I want my child to, to leave with uh, when they get out of the house is a continued love for learning. I feel like if you have this uh, love for learning, this passion to, to seek more is really going to be a, it's going to drive you to be self-improving, to, to take risks, to, to control or control the things that you have control over and not worry about the things I would also like them to be financially competent and understand finances and the, the power of compounding interest and savings and spending money responsibly. And of course, like our core values of, of hunger and trust, you know, teach them that the people are amazing. They're great people. The world is great. Yes, there is the, you know, percentage, small percentage, like a fraction of a percent of people who are terrible individuals. But everyone's good with terrible moments uh, and bad moments. So, you know, helping them have uh, trust for others. And then, of course, uh, hopefully help them become free. I don't really plan on, like, passing any money down to them or anything. So I want them to, to be able to earn their own wealth and hopefully create an environment where they, they know how to do that. But, you know, I'd say this now as a 38-year-old in 50 years, you know, maybe I will things done so i don't know yeah maybe if i live long enough hopefully i can skip their generation <laughs> you know they've already made their money and retired and then i can pass it on to their grandkids or great grandkids or something like that in a lot of beard bands content you know it's this education piece and most guys these days didn't have a father figure or any masculine figure to look up for for advice what do you think masculinity looks like today yeah this is a touchy <laughs> subject in 2020 because I feel like uh, men have been attacked and and with a lot of this negativity towards you know the patriarchy and and men uh, in general I think a lot of younger guys they don't know how to behave there's these traditional gender norms and rules that they don't know if they should be that anymore and then so they're kind of in this purgatory I really think that masculinity is is self-awareness. It's 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 and it's authenticity. It's tr- trying to understand who you are as an individual and then developing the confidence to be that person. Mm-hmm. And that person can be anything, right? Uh it can be a traditional, you know, masculine, hypermasculine guy, big muscles, big beard, you know, goes to the gym, shoots guns and uh punches things. Or it could be, you know, someone who's more cerebral, someone who likes the arts or creativity. So I kind of believe that, you know, the the roles that men do can be anything, but the, the commonality needs to be that, really that, that self-awareness of who you are and, and striving to be every day is, every day that the, the, the person that exists is the, the best version of you ever. So you're always elevating. And, and when I die, when I'm 100 years old, like on that day, I'm going to be the most epic you know, version of Eric Van Holtz ever. And it's going to be hard, you know, because as you get older, you you have to fight other ailments. But 
know, hopefully I'll figure out a way a way to do that where you know losing me at 100 years old is, is going to be more painstaking than losing me at 38. I think finding out what those values are for you and being able to stand in those every day and being able to take in the information around you and see how that mends with your values, being willing to change those if you think that it should be, but if not, standing in those, I think it's a strong key. Yeah, and uh, we have a couple of uh, slogans like uh, that I was trying to impart on my daughter. Banals is never give up. You know, try to, to tie in uh, our family name with the attributes of what it means to be a Banals. Uh, Banals is never give up, and Banals is learned from their mistakes. I wanted her to know that it's okay to make mistakes, but when we do, it's, it's we learn from them and we pick ourselves up and we grow. So uh, the expectation isn't to be perfect. So hopefully, you know, like she kind of gets those ingrained in her and she can apply those, both her and, and my son when he's old enough to kind of understand things. I think coming back to this, you know, learning from your mistakes, solving problems, you've said that business is just a series of problems to be solved. Do you think that this mentality could be applied to life and maybe solving some global issues that we face? That's probably one of my my favorite quotes either or subjects is, you know, business is just, as you said, a series of problems that you you work to solve. And then like the, the value of a business is, is all the problems that it's solved up to that point. And then uh, a business really stops growing at the point that people are, are no longer willing to solve those problems. So um, no longer willing or, or don't have the competency to solve, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I would say like uh, as an individual, that's, that's the same thing. Like, you know, a lot of times if you think about life, uh, when I was 20, you know, my number one problem was I wanted a person to spend my life with. So how do I solve that problem of finding, finding a girlfriend who's, you know, good enough to, to be with for the next uh, 70 years of my life? And uh, then how do I, you know, pay off these loans? And then how do I stay fit? You know, I think that's a big problem when you're out at college, your routine changes completely and you just start eating out all the time and you have no responsibilities, you get fat and you work. And, you know, how do you stay healthy and exercise and not just have good diet, but also a good exercise? And those problems will change, right? You'll get cancer as you get older. When it happen? how do we solve that problem? How do we fight through that? How do we solve the problem of, you know, your child dealing with some kind of issue? So, yeah, it'd be great if we didn't have problems, but then life would be pretty boring, huh? Yeah. We talked about in the beginning of the interview, you know, this kind of nature versus nurture. And if you are born with this ability to solve problems, you think there's a, a way to better nurture problem solvers? So, you know, my, my unscientific gut feel <laughs> is that everyone's a problem solver. I, I inherently believe that's what human humans are. And I kind of think schools beat it out of kids. Mm. I really think schools, uh, public schools, I'm a, I'm a product of public schools. I think they're designed to, to get a whole bunch of minions and people who just follow orders and don't think for themselves. And it's, you know, this a very off uh, authoritative, just this really like a power-oriented, teacher-oriented, authority-oriented organization, and then just getting these kids to be in line. And you know, someone like me, I don't, 
don't really thrive in that kind of environment. And, and I don't want to put my kids in that kind of environment. I, I, I think education is a really important thing and, and kids need to learn and, and grow. But public schools have a lot of opportunity to improve. And I think schools like Acton are, are the future for developing remarkable and it's not really developing remarkable students. It's really just allowing the students to be who they are and not be held back by by these external forces. I, I Personally, I feel like public schools held me back 10 years. I think an important piece is connecting, you know, what's important to each one of the students or to an individual with the problems that are in the world. Because if something's important to you, you want something from it, like you're going to figure out how to solve it. And so like it's a, you're going to use that innate nature. I mean, it's just a lot more fun if if you're working on problems that you want to solve and then learning math from it or science from it or, you know, rather than being like, here's a whole bunch of algebraic formulations and remember them and, you know, have that rote knowledge. It's like, who's going to remember like foil or butter <laughs> in our last, I mean, like who's going to do, like, I know some people are going to do it and it's good to have that exposure for the, the people who are interested in it. But, you know, to force uh, so many kids who will never use it and then to develop those insecurities around their their own confidence because they're not good at it, because they're not interested and, you know, ultimately drive them completely away from math to the point that they're never going to touch it down the road. Whereas maybe they will find interest in it in different things like, you know, through selling or through art class or something and realize that right. you know, there's some really cool art you can do for math. The last thing I wanted to touch on was in your book of reminders, the, the last reminder is you are the age of the universe. Oh uh, yeah. And I've kind of gone through, you know, my own discovery process of what spirituality uh, means to me, but in some sort of way of like, we are connected or united in some way. And, you know, when I'm bettering myself, I'm bettering you. And when I'm helping you, I'm also helping myself. How do you think about spirituality and, you know, that tied to your mission? I think spirit, spirituality is a really good word for it. Personally, I'm a, I'm like a non-believer. I'm an atheist. And when I was in college and in high school, I really struggled with that word, spirituality. And I didn't think it was something that, you know, I had to have. And then as I've gotten older, I realized that it is a really important part of of life and it's kind of uh, one of your, your guiding lights on how you make decisions and how you interpret the world and react to the world and how you build relationships and connect with other people. So I, I do like to take lessons from a lot of different religions, like I said, Buddhism and, you know, of course I was raised Catholic, so I have a lot of that imprint on my DNA with how I see the world. And, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, the age of the, the universe chapter is kind of like my, my woo experience. I still remember like flying over the Grand Canyon on an airplane when that, that chapter kind of hit me. And just like the, the grandness of, of how we are. And, and it really kind of is like a, a Buddhist thing as well. It's like we're, we're just a series of elements that somehow have life to it. But eventually when we die, the elements that make us up are just going to go back into the earth and, you know, onto to worms and onto birds and onto, you know, cats and onto, you know, ants and whatever it is. Like, so like we, we never cease to be from like physical standpoint, the elements that, that make us will, will always kind of be imprinted on that. So I think that's kind of 
a cool little thing. And, and it's almost like the more scientific look at to rebirth from a Buddhist mm-hmm. standpoint. So it's so if you took the dogma away of like, you know, this spiritual rebirth, but this would be like the physical rebirth of, of kind of what you have. And then you kind of understand how everything is connected. There's just a, a lot of really cool things in the world that if you don't have your mind open towards spirituality, you're not going to understand. Like just, I remember there's like a B, uh, is it BBC? Yeah. BBC documentary about plants and how plants actually communicate. Like when you cut grass and you smell the fresh cut grass, it's actually a distress symbol of grasses <laughs> telling other grasses to like, you know, be aware of that. Cabbage will do the the same thing as well. Or something like if, if there's one of them's getting attacked by, you know, like some kind of insect, it'll, it'll let out this fragrance that will alert bees and then bees will come in and eat them. And I know this isn't the exact same thing because bees eat pollen. So, but wasps it will like indicate the wasps and wasps will come in and eat those insects. So they have this, this type of communication that we just can't comprehend as, as a human life form, what a plant life form knows and understands and, and knows is probably not the right word, but just they are life, like plant is life. And it's just kind of um, interesting to think about. It's kind of like the whole avatar kind of stuff, like yeah, woo stuff. And I'm not a woo guy, but if you, you're open to it, it's just kind of interesting. I think there's a, like a sense of awe that it keeps for you, that there's something that you can have hope in or something beyond you that kind of helps root you a little bit. The whole purpose was like, you know, we're all going to die, right? And as a, a non-believer... There, there's no uh, gates and probably gates in the sky for me. You know, so how do I come to terms with death? Because it's going to happen to me. And I, uh, to me, I kind of take comfort in just knowing that the elements of me, the physical Eric Van Holtz will last forever. And they have lasted forever. And the stories that it's told, you know, up to the point when I eat my, you know, my steak of the cow that's eating the grass and the grass had the iron in it, you know, like and that iron, those iron elements, how they've been everywhere. And, I will help my, my body thrive. And, and then, you know, I'll move on. I'll, I'll bleed a little bit. And then that iron leaves my body. And so it's just kind of really uh, kind of interesting to, to think about it. Well, before I get to my last question, where can everybody find you, follow you, check things out? Yeah, I'm the only Eric Van Holtz uh, in the world. So if you Google my name, uh, there is another Eric with a E-R-I-C-H Van Holtz, but he doesn't spell it the same way. So I'm the only Eric Van Holtz. And Twitter has actually been my favorite platform as of late. So follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Bandholz, B-A-N-D-H-O-L-Z. And then, of course, I strongly and highly recommend that you buy something for Beard Brand. We've got everything from shampoo to body soap to beard products, of course. So if you have a body, there's a product for you, even cologne. And it, it, you know, our products can't really tell what kind of genitalia you have. So if you're a girl out there listening... Uh, my wife uses a lot of her products, as as, as does a, a lot of the girls in the office. Or if you have a bearded person in your life, you can get it for them too. So uh, check out beardbrand.com. Yeah, I highly recommend the products. I'm not paid to say that, but I'm an avid user of their, their beard products. So my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Yeah, I don't think, um, I'm not the type of guy to push the world to evolve. I'm, I'm the type of guy to encourage people to, to live the life they want the world to be. So if you want the world to be friendlier, then you start being friendly. If you want the world to be more generous, then you start being more generous. If you want the world to be more driven, then you'd be more driven. And through your actions, you're going to be able to, to influence 
the things that you have control over because the reality is you don't have control over politics you don't have control over you know like voting or you don't have control over other people you only have control over yourself so be the the person you want the world to be mm. well that was an excellent way to end the interview eric thank you so much for coming on the show today yeah man my pleasure thanks for having me Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.